Welcome to Folklore on the Rocks. <laughs> Hello once again, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Folklore on the Rocks. I'm Logan. I'm Lindsay. And together we are going to tell you some fun stories of some monsters, creatures gathered from around the world. This one is, uh, instead of focusing on an individual creature like we did last time, we're going to look at some of the stories uh, from that region. So, um, we're doing Japanese fairy tales, or folk tales first, because last week we did the Jorogumo, and I find that it's easiest to just take stuff from Project Gutenberg. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not copyrighted anymore, yeah, at least generally. You can get the whole thing, usually exactly. in the uh, in, in the cleanest translation, without a whole lot of uh, secondary interpretation mm-hmm. to it. And it's easily available for you guys if you want to go read more of that book. Um, so the book that we're taking from today is called Japanese Fairy Tales, and it's compiled by Ye Theodora Ozaki and Logan. That's me. What are you drinking? Well, I'm still rocking and rolling on this on this rum with, let's see, it, it started off as rum, then we <laughs> stacked in some soda water, and then I stacked in a nice little scoop of ice cream for sweetener, and a little bit of grenadine uh, flavoring just to turn the whole thing red. It's, it's a, a sweet version of the Kiss of the Spider. Yes, it's d- definitely sweet, but it is doing the job. That's excellent. Um, I am drinking the same thing as well i mean we are doing japanese and we're still kicking it with the kiss of the spider woman drink (laughs) now here in rocking and rolling here in salt lake it is a warm september day which means that i'm sticking to the usual rum of rum in the summer (sighs) before we can hit whiskey in the winter we are summer has been so very excited for the uh the autumn and cooler months not to mention halloween hell yeah the best holiday all right well, let's get started with our, our folk story here. Yeah. Um, so the first one is called The Farmer and the Badger. And, uh, well, most of the explanation you need is going to be right at the front of the story. So yeah. here we go. Long, long ago, there lived an old farmer and his wife who had made their home in the mountains, far from any town. Their only neighbor was a bad and malicious badger. The badger used to come out every night and run across the farmer's field and spoil the vegetables and the rice, which the farmer spent his day very, very carefully cultivating. The badger at last grew so ruthless in his mischievous work and did so much harm everywhere on the farm that the good-natured farmer could not stand it any longer and grew determined to put a stop to it. So he lay in wait in the fields day after day and night after night with a big club hoping to catch the badger, but all in vain. But then... He laid traps for the wicked animal. The farmer's trouble and patience were rewarded. For one fine day, on going on his rounds around the farm, he found the badger caught in a hole that he had dug for that purpose. The farmer was delighted that he had caught his enemy and carried him home securely bound with rope. When he reached the house, the farmer said to his wife, I have at last caught the old badger. You must keep an eye on him while I am out at work and not let him escape, because I want to make him into soup tonight. Saying this, he hung the badger up in the rafters of his storehouse and went out to work in the fields. The badger was in great distress, for he did not at all like the idea of being made into soup that night, and he thought and he thought for a very long time, trying to hit upon some plan by which he might escape. It was hard to think clearly in his uncomfortable position, for he had been hung upside down. Very near him, at the entrance to the storehouse, looking out towards the green fields and the trees and the pleasant sunshine, stood the farmer's old wife pounding barley. She looked tired and old. 
Her face was seamed with many wrinkles and was as brown as leather, and every now and again she stopped to wipe the perspiration which rolled down her face. Dear lady, said the wily badger, you must be very, very weary doing such heavy work in your old age. Won't you let me do that for you? My arms are very strong, and I could relieve you for a little while. Oh, thank you for your kindness, said the old woman. But I cannot let you do this work, for I must not untie you, for you might escape if I did, and my husband would be very, very angry if he came home and found you gone. Now the badger is one of the most cunning of animals, and he said again, in a very sad, gentle voice, You are very unkind. You might untie me. I promise not to escape. If you are afraid for your husband, I will let you bind me before he returns, uh, and after I have finished pounding all the barley. I am so tired and sore tied up like this. If you would only let me down for a few minutes, I would indeed be thankful. The old woman had a good and simple nature, and she could not think badly of anyone, much less did she think that the badger was only deceiving her in order to get away. She felt sorry too for the animal as she turned to look at him. He looked in such a sad plight hanging downwards from the ceilings by his legs, which were all tied together so tightly that the rope and knots were cutting into his skin. So in the kindness of her heart, and believing the creature's promise that he would not get away, she untied the cord and let him down. The old woman then gave him the wooden pestle and told him to do the work for a short time while she rested. He took the pestle, and instead of doing the work, as he was told, the badger at once sprang upon the old woman and knocked her down with a heavy piece of wood. He then killed her and cut her up and made a soup of her, and waited for the return of the old farmer. The old man worked hard in his fields all day, and as he worked, he thought with pleasure that no more now would his labor be spoiled by the destructed badger. Towards the sunset, he left his work and turned to go home for he was very tired, but the thought of a nice supper of hot badger soup awaiting his return cheered him up. The thought that the badger might get free and take his revenge on the poor old woman never once came to his mind. The badger, meanwhile, assumed the old woman's form, and as soon as he saw the old farmer approaching, came out to greet him on the veranda of his little house, saying, "'So you have come back at last. I have made the badger soup, and I have been waiting for you a long time.' The old farmer quickly took off his sandals and sat down before his dinner tray. The innocent man never even dreamed that it was not his wife, but the badger who was waiting upon him, and asked at once for the soup. Then the badger suddenly transformed himself back to his natural form and cried out, You wife-eating old man! Look out for the bones in the kitchen! Laughing loudly and derisively, he escaped out of his house and ran away to his den in the hills. The old man was left behind. He could hardly believe what he had seen and heard. Then when he understood the whole truth, he was so scared and horrified that he fainted right away. After a while, he came round and burst into tears. He cried loudly and bitterly. He rocked himself to and fro in his hopeless grief. It seemed too terrible to be real that his faithful old wife had been killed and cooked by the wicked badger. While he was working quietly in the fields, knowing nothing of what was going on at home, and congratulating himself for having at once gotten rid of the mean old badger, who had so often spoiled his fields. And oh, the horrible thought! He had nearly drunk all of the soup that the creature had made of this poor old woman. Oh dear, oh dear, he wailed aloud. 
Now, not far from there, there lived on the same mountain a kind, good-hearted old rabbit. He had heard the old man crying and sobbing, and at once set out to see what was the matter, and if there was anything he could do to help his neighbor. The old man told him all that had happened, and when the rabbit heard the story, he was very angry at the wicked and deceitful badger, and told the old man to leave everything to him, for he would avenge his wife's death. The farmer was at last comforted and wiped away his tears and thanked the rabbit for his goodness in coming to him in his distress. The rabbit, seeing the farmer was growing calmer, went back to his home to lay his plans for the punishment of the badger. The next day the weather was fine, and the rabbit went out to find the badger. He was not to be seen in the woods or the hillside or in the fields anywhere. So the rabbit went to his den and found the badger hiding there, for the animal had been afraid to show himself ever since he had escaped the farmer's house for fear of the old man's wrath. The rabbit called out, "'Why are you not out on such a beautiful day?' Come out with me and we'll go and cut grass on the hills together. The badger, never doubting that the rabbit was his friend, willingly consented to go out with him. Only too glad to get away from the neighborhood of the farmer and the fear of meeting him, the rabbit led the way miles from their homes, out on the hills where the grass grew tall and thick and sweet. They both set out to work to cut down as much as they could carry home or store it up for the winter's food. When they had both cut down as much as they wanted and tied it in bundles, they started homewards, each carrying on his back the big bundle of sweet grass. This time, the rabbit made the badger go first. When they had gone a little way, the rabbit took out a flint and steel, and striking it over the badger's back, as he stepped along in front, set his entire bundle of grass on fire. The badger heard the flint striking and asked, What's that noise? Crack! Crack! Oh, that is nothing, replied the rabbit. I only said crack, crack, because, uh, because this mountain is called Crackling Mountain. The fire soon spread in the bundle of dry grass on the badger's back. The badger, hearing the crackle of burning grass, said, Now, now, what is that? Ah, now we have come to the burning mountain, answered the rabbit. But this time the bundle was nearly burned out, and all the hair had been burned off the badger's back. He now knew what had happened by the smell of smoke in the burning grass. Screaming with pain, the badger ran as fast as he could to his hole. The rabbit followed and found him lying on his bed, groaning with pain. Oh, what an unlucky fellow you are, said the rabbit. I can't imagine how this happened. I'll bring you some medicine. It'll heal your back quickly. The rabbit went away, glad and smiling, to think that the badger's punishment had already begun. He had hoped the badger would die of his burns, for he felt that nothing could be too bad for the animal, who was guilty of murdering a poor old woman who had trusted him. He went home and made an ointment by mixing up some sauce and some red pepper together. He carried this to the badger, but before putting it on, he told him that it would cause him much pain, but he must bear it patiently, for it was a wonderful medicine for burns and scalds and such wounds. The badger thanked him and begged him to apply it at once. But no language could describe the agony of the badger as soon as he felt the red pepper had been pasted all over his sore back. He rolled over and over and howled loudly. The rabbit, looking on, felt that the farmer's wife was beginning to be avenged. The badger was in bed for about a month, but at last, in spite of the red pepper application, his burns healed and he got well. When the rabbit saw that the badger was getting well, he thought of another plan by which he could encompass the creature's death. 
So he went one day to pay the badger a visit and to congratulate him on his recovery. During the conversation, the rabbit mentioned that he was going fishing and described how pleasant fishing was when the weather was fine and the sea was smooth. The badger listened with pleasure to the rabbit's account of the way he passed his time now and forgot all his pains and his month's illness and thought what fun it would be if he could go fishing too. So he asked the rabbit if he would take him the next time he went out to fish. This was just what the rabbit wanted, so he agreed. Then he went home and built two boats, one of wood and the other of clay. At last, when they were both finished and the rabbit stood and looked at his work, he felt that all his trouble would be well rewarded if his plan succeeded, and he could manage to kill that wicked badger now. The day came when the rabbit had arranged to take the badger fishing. He kept the wooden boat himself, but gave the badger the clay one. The badger, who knew nothing about boats, was delighted with his new boat, and he thought how kind it was for the rabbit to give it to him. They both got into their boats and set out. After going some distance from the shore, the rabbit proposed that they should try their boats and see which one could go the quickest. The badger fell in with the proposal too, and they both set to work to row as fast as they could for some time. In the middle of the race, the badger found that his boat started to go to pieces, for the water had begun to soften the clay. He cried out in great fear to the rabbit. He said, help me, help me. But the rabbit answered that he was avenging the old woman's murder and that this had been his intention all along and that he was happy to think the badger had met his last deserts for all his evil crimes and was to drown with no one to help him. Then he raised his oar and struck at the badger with all his strength till he fell with the sinking boat and was seen no more. Thus, at last, he kept his promise to the old farmer. The rabbit now turned and rowed shorewards. Having landed and pulled his boat upon the beach, he hurried back to the old farmer and told him everything, and how the badger, his enemy, had finally been killed. The old farmer thanked him with tears in his eyes. He said that till now he could never sleep at night or be at peace during the daytime, thinking of how his wife's death was unavenged. But from this time he would be able to sleep and eat as of old. He begged the rabbit to stay with him and share his home. So from this day, the rabbit went to stay with the old farmer and they both lived together as good friends to the very end of their days. The end. Aww. Yeah. It's, A murdery best friend. Yeah, I, d I do think it should be noted the kind of lighter approach the story takes to murder and vengeance um by talking animal <laughs> yeah and uh maybe from a western perspective uh instead of calling out i was avenging the old woman in more of a a bugs bunny kind of scenario the rabbit might say some kind of witty quip and yes still leave the badger to his doom but, but maybe not murder yeah yeah maybe since that's what the badger did in the first place. Mm -hmm. But that's just the difference. I mean, granted, he didn't make a soup out of the badger. Yeah, yeah. So there's that, I guess. I suppose, yeah. But it is an interesting tale in that aspect. Mm -hmm. I mean, here I'm going to avenge your dead wife by... I don't know. It's got a lot of elements into it. It does. You think about it at the same time, like, this is getting maybe a little political, but our justice system, mm -hmm. and it depends on the state you're in, but you murder and then you get murdered. So in our society, that does happen. Yeah, we do have. have we don't some. have, like, talking animals doing it. 
per se, <laughs> but it's, it, it does happen. And I mean, you can be on both sides of the fence on whether that's an okay thing or not. Sure. You know? And things are different when every situation differs. Yeah. Right? I do think this story also gives us kind of a glimpse into pastoral Japanese life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, it was very... Where you smoke a lot of stuff and all the animals talk to you. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but also it's very agrarian. It's... Yes. Uh, it's the hardworking farmer, the hardworking wife. Yeah. And relationships are, are built upon and work. Someone takes all and, your yeah. crap away. Like, that's your livelihood. You don't survive without your crops. Yeah, their, their animal personification of a villain is one that undoes their mm-hmm. work. Yeah, and who's to say it's not some the personification of some human robber or something that's coming and messing stuff up or teenage vandals. Cause let's face it. Teenagers are vandals. Oh yeah. Anywhere. In, yeah, anywhere in any anytime. Time. Yeah. That's a, so, I mean, it could be that it could be them stealing his crops or a multitude of things that, you know, I mean, it's, it's a fable. It's a fairy tale for a reason. It's supposed to be a lesson. It's supposed to be allegorical. It's mm-hmm. supposed to, talk about something that's an average story or maybe not average but in in a way that's quimsical quim, quimsical that's a new word too <laughs> that is our epi- that is our word of the day for this episode quimsical as opposed to ship safety <laughs> uh-huh. last time jeez okay whimsical <laughs> it, it is whimsical i mean you mm-hmm. do have talking animals but you know, that's the storytelling element of yep. it. Um, this rabbit fellow, kind of a sadist. A little bit, yeah. Like burning someone and then rubbing hot peppers into their burns is kind of a dick move. I'm just going to say it. Yeah, he's he's not quite as lovable as, <laughs> so much. as some other rabbits from like, folklore. Super glad he's got the farmer's back. Yeah. No hate there, but like... It's kind of sadistic, really. That that is an element of him. Yeah. Um Yeah. I mean, that's torture really in a sense. <laughs> it, the, whatever the badger's crimes were, they were taken very seriously. Mm-hmm. And uh, it could be the the elements of of dishonesty that went into it. Uh, yeah. The uh, con like, man badger. Yeah. And 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 knowing what little I know, I th- I feel like that that does make things worse mm-hmm. in this particular setting. Yeah. It's weird that I come out of this tale feeling bad for the badger when clearly the point of this is to be like, the badger was horrible. He murdered this adorable old woman and made her into soup. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like kind of fighting for his own life, maybe didn't need to murder her could have just run away yeah he could have he could have made a lot of choices differently that wouldn't have ended up with exactly. him at the bottom but of the scene i end up feeling boat. sympathetic to him a little yeah you know and kind of think the rabbit's a dick but clearly that's not the point of this tale <laughs> it's clearly colored through our perspective of hundreds of years later across the world so yeah some take it that, for what it is some of that modern morally gray yeah. Stories going yeah, but it's definitely it. a yeah. fable. It's supposed to teach the lesson of you do something bad, something bad might happen to you. You know, golden rule. Mm-hmm. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which is a very fair way to live your life. Like, I think that's great. 
and more people should practice that, including myself. So maybe we can just take that away from it. Yeah. yeah. You know? And there is... Karma. Karma's a bitch. Mm-hmm. <gasps> yeah, and there's, there's definitely some uh, some value to these old stories. And if that's all we take away from this one, I think it's plenty. I think so, too. Cool. Our next story is also from Japan. It is entitled, The Story of the Man Who Did Not Wish to Die. So let's just jump right into it, and we'll uh, explore it together. Long, long ago, there lived a man called Sentaro. His surname meant millionaire, and although he was not so rich as all of that, he was still very far removed from being poor. He had inherited a small fortune from his father and lived on this, spending his time carelessly, without any serious thoughts of work till he was about 32 years of age. One day, without any reason whatsoever, the thought of death and sickness came to him. The idea of falling ill or dying made him very wretched. I should like to live, he said to himself, till I am five or six hundred years old at least, free from all sickness. The ordinary span of a man's life is very short. He wondered whether it were possible, by living simply and frugally henceforth, to prolong his life as long as he wished. He knew there were many stories in ancient history of emperors who had lived a thousand years. And then there was a princess of Yamato, who it was said, lived to the age of 500. This was the latest story of a very long life record. Sentaro had often heard of the Chinese king called Shin no Shiko. He was one of the most able and powerful rulers in Chinese history. He had built all the large palaces and also the famous Great Wall of China. He had everything in the world he could possibly ask for, but in spite of all his happiness and the luxury and the splendor of his court, the wisdom of his counselors and the glory of his reign, he was miserable because he knew one day he must die and leave it all. When Shin Noshiko went to bed at night, when he rose in the morning, as he went through his day, the thought of death was always with him. He could not get away from it. Ah, if only he could find the elixir of life, he would be happy. The emperor at last called a meeting of all of his courtiers and asked them if they could not find for him the elixir of life, of which he had often so read and heard. One old courtier, Jofuku by name, said that far across the seas there was a country called Horizon, and that certain hermits lived there who possessed the secret of the elixir of life. Whoever drank of this wonderful draft lived forever. The emperor ordered Jofuku to set out to the land of Horizon to find these hermits and to bring back a file of this magic elixir. He gave Jofuku one of his best junks, fitted it out for him, and loaded it with great quantities of treasures and precious stones for Jofuku to trade as presents to the hermits. Jofuku sailed for the land of Horizon, but he never returned to the waiting emperor. But ever since that time, Mount Fuji has been said to be the fabled Horizon and the home of the hermits who had the secret of the elixir and Jofuku has been worshipped as their patron god. Now Sentaro determined to set out to find the hermits, and if he could, to become one, so that he might one day obtain the water of perpetual life. He remembered that as a child he had been told that not only did these hermits live on Mount Fuji, but that they were said to inhabit all of the very high peaks. So he left his old home to the care of his relatives and started out on his quest. He traveled through all the mountainous regions of the land, climbing to the tops of the highest peaks, but never a hermit did he find. At last, after wandering in an unknown region for many days, he met a hunter. "'Can you tell me,' asked Sentaro, "'where the hermits live who have the elixir of life?' "'No,' said the hunter. "'I can't tell you where such hermits live, 
but there is a notorious robber living in these parts. It is said that he is chief of a band of two hundred followers. This odd answer irritated Centaro very much, and he thought how foolish it was to waste more time looking for the hermits in this way. So he decided to go at once to the shrine of Jofuku, who is worshipped as the patron god of the hermits in the south of Japan. Centaro reached the shrine and prayed for seven days, entreating Jofuku to show him the way to a hermit who could give him what he wanted so much to find. At midnight of the seventh day, as Centaro knelt in the temple, the door of the innermost shrine flew open, and Jofuku appeared in a luminous cloud, and calling to Centaro to come closer, spoke thus, Your desire is a very selfish one, and cannot be easily granted. You think that you would like to live as a hermit, so as to find the elixir of life. Do you think how hard a hermit's life is? A hermit is only allowed to eat fruit and berries in the bark of pine trees. A hermit must cut himself off from the world, so that his heart may become as pure as gold and free from every earthly desire. Gradually, after following these strict rules, the hermit ceases to feel hunger or cold or heat, and his body becomes so light that he can ride on a crane or a carp and can walk on water without ever getting his feet wet. You, Centaro, are fond of good living and of every comfort. You are not even like an ordinary man, for you are exceptionally idle and more sensitive to heat and cold than most people. You would never be able to go barefoot and wear only thin dress in the winter time. Do you think you would ever have the patience or the endurance to live a hermit's life? In answer to your prayer, however, I will help you in another way. I will send you to the country of perpetual life, where death never comes, where the people live forever. Saying this, Jofuku put into Sentaro's hand a little crane made of paper, telling him to sit on its back and it would carry him there. Sentaro obeyed willingly. The crane grew large enough for him to ride on it with comfort. Then it spread its wings, rose high in the air, and flew away over the mountains right out to the sea. Sentaro was at first quite frightened, but by degrees he grew accustomed to the swift flight through the air. On and on, they went for thousands of miles. The bird never stopped for rest or food, but as it was a paper bird, it doubtless did not require any nourishment. And strange to say, neither did Centaro. After several days, they reached an island. The crane flew some distance inland and then alighted. As soon as Centaro got down from the bird's back, the crane folded up of its own accord and flew into his pocket. Now Centaro began to look about him wonderingly curious to see what the country of perpetual life was like. He walked first round about the country, and then through the town. Everything was, of course, quite strange, and different from his own land. But both the land and people seemed prosperous, so he decided it would be good for him to stay there, and he took up lodgings at one of the hotels. The proprietor was a kind man, and when Centaro told him that he was a stranger who had come to live there, he promised to arrange everything that was necessary with the governor of the city concerning Centaro's sojourn there. He even found a house for his guest. And in this way, Centaro obtained his great wish and became a resident in the country of perpetual life. Within the memory of all the islanders, no man had ever died there, and sickness was a thing unknown. 
Priests had come over from India and China and told them of a beautiful country called Paradise, where happiness and bliss and contentment fill all men's hearts. But its gates could only be reached by dying. This tradition was handed down for ages from generation to generation, but nobody knew exactly what death was except that it led to Paradise. Quite unlike Centauro and other ordinary people, instead of having a great dread of death, they all, both rich and poor, longed for it as something good and desirable. They were all tired of their long, long lives and longed to go to the happy land of contentment called Paradise, of which the priests had told them centuries ago. All this Centauro soon found out by talking to the islanders. He found himself, according to his ideas, in the lands of topsy-turvydom. Everything was upside down. He had wished to escape from dying. He had come to this land of perpetual life with great relief and joy, only to find that the inhabitants themselves, doomed never to die, would consider it bliss to find death. What he had hitherto considered poison, these people ate as great food. And all the things to which he had become accustomed, as food, they rejected. Whenever any merchants from other countries arrived, the rich people rushed to them, eager to buy poisons. These they swallowed eagerly, hoping for death to come, so that they might go to paradise. But what were deadly poisons in other lands were without effect in this strange place. The people who swallowed them with the hope of dying only found that in a short time they felt better in health instead of worse. Vainly they tried to imagine what death could be like. The wealthy would have given all of their money and all of their goods if they could but shorten their lives to two or three hundred years even. Without any change to live on forever, oh, that seemed to this people wearisome and sad. In the chemist shops there was a drug which was in constant demand because after using it for a hundred years, it was supposed to turn the hair slightly gray and to bring about disorders of the stomach. Centaro was astonished to find that the poisonous globefish was served up in restaurants as a delectable dish, and hawkers in the street went about selling sauces made out of Spanish flies. He never saw anyone ill after eating one of those horrible things, nor did he ever see anyone come down with so much as a cold. Centaro was delighted. He had said to himself that he would never grow tired of living, and that he considered it profane to wish for death. He was the only happy man on the island. For his part, he wished to live thousands of years and to enjoy life. He set himself up in business, and for the present never even dreamed about going back to his native land. As years went by, however, things did not go as smoothly as at first. He had heavy losses in business, and several times some affairs went wrong with his neighbors. This caused him great annoyance. Time passed like the flight of an arrow for him, for he was busy from morning till night. Three hundred years went by in this monotonous way, then at last he began to grow tired of life in this country. He longed to see his own land and his old home. However long he lived here, life would always be the same. So was it not foolish and wearisome to stay on here forever? Centaro, in his wish to escape from the country of perpetual life, recollected Jofuku, who had helped him before when he was wishing to escape from death, and he prayed to the saint to bring him back to his own land again. No sooner did he pray than the paper crane appeared out of his pocket. Centaro was amazed to see that it had remained undamaged after all of these years. Once more, the bird grew and grew till it was large enough for him to mount it. As he did so, the bird spread its wings and flew swiftly out over the sea in the direction of Japan. Such was the willingness of man's nature that he looked back and regretted all he had left behind. He had tried to stop the bird in vain. The crane held on its way for thousands of miles across the ocean. Then a storm came on, and the wonderful paper crane got damp, crumpled up, and fell into the sea. And Centaro fell with it. 
Very much frightened at the thought of being drowned, he called out loudly to Jofuku to save him. He looked round, but there was no ship in sight. He swallowed a quantity of seawater, which only increased his miserable plight. While he was thus struggling to keep himself afloat, he saw a monstrous shark swimming toward him. As it came nearer, it opened its huge mouth, ready to devour him. Centaro was all but paralyzed with fear now, and he felt his end so near, and screamed so loudly as he ever could to Jofuku to come and rescue him. Lo and behold, Centaro was awakened by his own screams, to find that during his long prayer he had fallen asleep before the shrine, and that all his extraordinary and frightful adventures had only been a wild dream. He was in cold perspiration with fright, and utterly bewildered, but suddenly... A bright light came toward him, and in the light stood a messenger. The messenger held a book in his hand and spoke to Sentaro. I am sent to you by Jofuku, who, in answer to your prayer, has permitted you in a dream to see the land of perpetual life. But you grew weary of living there, and begged to be allowed to return to your native land so that you might die. Jofuku, so that he might try you, allowed you to drop into the sea, and then sent a shark to swallow you up. Your desire for death was not real, for even in the moment you cried out loudly and shouted for help. It is also in vain for you to wish to become a hermit, or to find the elixir of life. These things are not for such as you. Your life is not austere enough. It is best for you to go back to your paternal home, and to live a good and industrious life. Never neglect to keep the anniversaries of your ancestors, and make it your duty to provide for your children's future. Thus will you live to a good old age and be happy, but give up the vain desire to escape death, for no man can do that. And by this time, you will have surely found out, even when selfish desires are granted, they do not bring happiness. In this book I give you, there are many precepts of good for you to know. If you study them, you will be guided in the way that I have pointed out to you. The angel disappeared as soon as he had finished speaking, and Sentaro took up the lesson to heart. And with the book in his hand, he returned to his old home, and giving up all of his old vain wishes, tried to live a good and useful life and to observe the lessons that were taught to him in the book. And he and his house prospered henceforth. The end. The end. We made it. Cool. Okay, so my first question is where can I get one of those cranes? That is a pretty cool crane. I'm not going to... Because the super want it. Yeah. I'm curious if I spray it with, like, the sealant you can put on maps so that they stay safe in the rain. Will it still work? I don't know. Or you could epoxy that shit. Yeah. Seems like there's some more research that could be done. Yeah. To I be- mean, granted, they didn't have those things then. Yeah. So, of course, they didn't think of it. Mm-hmm. Now, this one, uh, rather than having kind of the, the nature spirits of the other story that we mm-hmm. read, uh, this one does seem to have a little bit more of a deific kind of aspect to it there is an objective right right and wrong there is punishment for the wicked there is glory for the just and and that kind of thing it's more grand yeah i don't know to me just coming at it from a western point of view that seems like it seems like between the last story and this one um it seems like at least somebody had become familiar with the western bible stories it does have kind of a more christian feel to it Mm -hmm. uh but I could be way off on that. Or maybe one. Uh, Buddhist might make more sense. Very possible. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, a lot more stories, less 
pastoral like the last one and more religious i guess yeah yeah make a lot more sense Mm -hmm. this Um, does kind of fit the i have no idea what time period each of these are from i have no clue but it, it definitely makes sense and these are extremely different from each other which i like yeah I think it gives a good kind of a gamut <laughs> of types of myth, um, but types of folktales. I did find Jofuku to be my favorite character in this, I think. Okay. I mean, we learn early on that he's the patron, I think, of like hermits and Her- monks Hermits and stuff. is what it was, yeah. And I think the only reason this guy, what's his butt, Sentaro, was calling on Jofuku is just because he knew where this place was really yeah not anything to do with i want to go be a hermit i don't want to live in society anymore i don't it was it was nothing like that he just wanted to keep living right so he wasn't really calling on him with good intentions do you think uh maybe jofuku was a supernatural being of some kind who disguised himself as a courtier well, no. So, okay. No? So, what it was talking about in the beginning, uh-huh. it's a separate story. Oh. Yeah. It took me a minute and I went back while you were reading it. So, different. It was, oh, yeah, it's a, exactly. It's a prologue. It was talking one. about how Jofuku came to be to that place. Like, uh. it was a story that Sindaro had heard, and that's why he called on Jofuku. That makes so he became, much more sense. He became a D, de- like, he started out as a courtier and then became deified. Yeah. As like the patron saint of permits and that kind of thing. So it took me a second too, but I was like, oh, he's a different person. Like he, this occurred at separate times. Gotcha. And now it all makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So yes, he did start out normal mm-hmm. and then became deified. Yeah. Now, um, with this idea of patron saints over a concept that, that is a different style um, it seems Christian. Yeah, yeah. Um, that being said, that might just be the the Western word for it. Right, um, exactly. Mm-hmm. We don't know enough about Eastern religions to say one way or the other. And as we continue with this podcast, we shall learn. If yeah. we are way off base with any of this, please give us some feedback. Uh, especially well, let us know. It'd be really interesting. Something that you'd recommend that we read because mm-hmm. that's what this is. It's, it's it's exploring and expanding our own horizons here. You're on an adventure with us. Yeah. Well, cool. Anything to add on there? What do you think if suddenly you were living in the land of uh, of everlasting life, mm-hmm. what would you do uh, if you essentially If I were immortal? Yeah, if you were immortal, but not necessarily super powered. It, it would really depend on what's accessible mm-hmm. and where I was. Were I living in our society... Today, with all the access that I have to everything and the freedom to move about, which clearly these people didn't have. They had their community. And to be stuck in the same community eternally is bullshit. That would totally suck. Oh, for sure. I hope you like your neighbors. (laughs) Exactly. But if I had the freedom to move around and the freedom to see things progress as they do. I mean, you think back in the last couple of decades and how far we've come you know, I'd love to see where we're at in 100, 200 years mm-hmm. and how significantly things have changed. It'd be so cool. I think that I would probably take the time to read as much as I could to, well, obviously the first step is to invest 
so that I have money so that I can do these things, yes, right? Yes, the, the dragon principle. Exactly. But read a lot, learn languages, research as much as I can, probably watch a shitload of Netflix. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, you gotta get as those, you do. get to those hidden categories. Yeah, just, just explore my internal world because that would become something that matters far more than what's happening around me because it becomes irrelevant yeah. when everyone around you is dying. I, yeah, and I do <laughs> feel like there is some logic to your plan. Um, look back on the past as much as you can because you are you know that you're going to be there for tomorrow mm-hmm. and you, you want to be able to, to handle it. And, you know, eventually those around you will start to realize, hey – Lindsay has a way of not dying. Maybe we should ask her what's going on. And then you become a science experiment or yeah. hated everywhere. I don't know. That, that would suck. A very real possibility. So too. become a hermit too. <laughs> that's up on my list. Um, what would you do? Oh, that's that's tricky. Um, or what would you ideally do? Ideally, I well, for one, I would not spend it in one place. I would travel. I would right, explore. Right, definitely. Which might break the rules if you, if, if we're going with this story. Yeah, yes. in this story, if I've got to stay in one place, I would definitely bring all of my instruments with me—the ones that I own but don't know how to play—and mm-hmm. try to get that a little bit more caught up in the col- column B. Uh, Learn from masters across the world. Yeah, yeah, and focus on creation. Um, mm-hmm. Whether if you've got finally some art to, uh, some time to create art what do you create yeah take classes and everything learn as much as possible expend as much artistic juice as possible whether it's books or writing or painting or playing music Mm -hmm. because if you're stuck in one spot at least you can send influence Mm -hmm. out and that's Um, expression it's self-expression too which is hugely valuable as any kind of therapy but especially if you live eternally like you're going to need some sort of outlet, right? Yeah. <laughs> you just need it. <laughs> but with this story set up, no dice. I'm mm. good. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think you would take the deal? I, it would depend on if I knew it ended with a shark or not. Ah, okay. Because if I knew, then shit, no. <laughs> I'm terrified of sharks, which makes a lot of sense because I live in a landlocked state. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's really kind of an irrational fear, but it's like the thing that I'm afraid of. Um, so if this story ends with me plopped in the open ocean and a monstrous shark coming towards me. You only get that if you, if you choose if I you have leave. to leave the island. Yeah, no, I still wouldn't go. Am I allowed to surf? That seems like. <laughs> sure. That's Yeah, that's not going sure. too far out. Yeah. No, I mean, really, really, it comes down to living with the same people Mm -hmm. forever. That would be the worst part. Like, I love people, but only to a specific degree. Like, I need my alone time. I need new... You grow. That's the thing. You grow over time. Yeah. You know, think about who you were 10 years ago, and you are not the same person. Not even close. And you don't associate with some of the people that you associated with 10 years ago, right? So your neighbors stay the same, everyone in your entire town exactly. You would know literally everything about every person. Mm-hmm. And I just I just don't need that in my life. Yeah. Then it becomes the the 
Bill Murray sequence from Groundhog Day. Of exactly. How are you going to kill yourself? I, I did like the image of all the rich people running down to the docks for the latest and greatest poisons. <laughs> right. It's a very interesting story that way. Yeah. You know, how can we heal ourselves? It didn't work again. <laughs> um, but I mean, really, it comes down to what, like, what the angel talks to him about at the very end. You know, the, the point of the story, which is really... Uh, when selfish desires are granted, they do not bring happiness. Boy, yeah, you can get that tattooed somewhere real special. That's maybe in Japanese. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but really, that's what it is. Like, if you pursue something and you want something for the wrong reasons, it's never going to end well for you. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you're pursuing something for self growth, for someone else, for the right reasons it's a worthwhile pursuit yeah. in this case and in many other cases that we could find many examples of it's not valuable it's not worth the effort it's not worth the pain it's not worth all the time you spend and the heartache that you put other people through yeah you know so i mean i i do like the story i think that it has maybe more bearing in today's world than the previous one did yeah yeah which is good Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you think? I'm right there with you. I think that there's a lot that can be drawn from this for uh, a modern life, especially as we enter into a time when uh, we're getting pretty close to you will live as long as your pocketbook allows. Um, mm-hmm. We're going altered carbon. It'll be fine. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it does kind of ask some big questions of, is that really a life well lived? Mm-hmm. Um and that's up to everybody on their own to decide. But uh, you know, I, I my answer is uh, is better to. I always figure a good story is only good if you've got someone to tell it to. True. And so, therefore, I'm all about friends and life and nice, happy things and storytelling. Yes, regardless of. You know, as opposed to just money going in one big thing, build up, build mm-hmm. up, build up. Yeah, I don't need a big vault like Scrooge McDuck so that I can go swimming. I mean, who would really want to swim in a giant pool of gold coins? That sounds extremely uncomfortable oh, and yeah. probably literally impossible. I'm sure there's a density issue as well. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Unless the gold coins are just like floating on the top, then maybe not. Yeah. It's maybe a- it's a lie. He's lying to us. Oh, since I was a child. I mean, that's not the only thing that's lied to us, but one of the many. Yeah. But, you know, by looking at back at some of these older stories, we can figure out our own truths, you know? And that's why we do this. Yeah, absolutely. We should reflect on the allegories of the past. We should learn from the stories that have been told for millennia. Yeah. yeah and find ways that we can incorporate them into our own lives. And, and a lot of the time... Uh, very much what we were talking about. Um, you have to kind of draw on your own experiences to figure out what you're going to do tomorrow. And sometimes your own experiences are too narrow a channel. So you can broaden that by reading stories, by expanding what you know, by stepping on what others have discovered and moving forward. Yeah. With it. I mean, think about how you learned about the world when you, you were young, mm-hmm. right? You learned about it through books you learned about it through stories of friends coming back from places and telling you things you learned about it from the bbc probably yeah you know david Attenborough telling you all about the world and 
we all start out with that fresh slate of not knowing and just the exploration and things that we find out. That's how you grow. Yeah. And if you're not doing that, then you're just missing out. Totally. Well, cool. Well, that's all I've got on this one. Lindsay, you good? Nothing to add? No, I think we're good. I think that we had a couple of really great stories. Yeah, I I definitely agree. Um, Listeners out there, thank you so much for joining us. If you've got anything to add or comment or questions, please, please send it on in to us. We'd love to hear from you. Other than that, keep on listening when somebody tells a story and figure out how you're going to improve on it, yeah? (laughs) Now, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at at Folklore on the Rocks and Twitter at at Folklore Rocks. And if you'd like to see pictures, more in-depth notes, or want to peek at our sources, go to www.folkloreontherocks.com. Now, we do have a Patreon with some really fun benefits, so go ahead and check that out if you'd like to donate. Uh, we'll also be creating a merch shop, which is uh, mostly going to have uh, shirts, mugs, hats, etc., all, all very, very soon. If you have any personal stories about creatures, monsters, or cryptids, even if you don't know exactly what it was, please email them to us at stories at folkloreontherocks.com. We'd love to collect enough to do eventually do a listener stories episode. Additionally, if you have any questions or comments, please email them to mail at folkloreontherocks.com. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we beg you to please rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It will help us immensely, especially since we're first starting out. Once we hit 100 reviews, we'll do a bonus episode with a listener-selected creature. Also, please don't forget to tell your friends, as word of mouth is just, well, it's the best marketing a podcast can get. Thanks again for listening, everyone. 